Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Well, good evening to Redemption and to Icon. Uh, man, it is so good to be with you guys. Uh, I've been very excited about this for a long time. And, uh, you know, if you're with Redemption, I didn't get to meet you. I'd, I'd love to meet you in person. Uh, I just want to tell you, I love your pastor. Uh, I am I'm so grateful for him. You do too. Good. You should. Uh, he's a good man. Uh, I met him probably about seven months ago now. Uh, we had coffee together. And, uh, you know, because of some, all the story with Icon and what it's come from and where it is, I, I was just kind of in a place where I needed another pastor to be a friend. Um, and like a good, just sixth grade boy, I just told him, will you be my friend? Uh, <laughs> and Alex said, yeah, I'll be your friend. You know, if you know Alex, you can hear him like saying it in his tone and everything. I love it. Um, so I'm so excited to be here. Also, in the same way that Alex called it out, I, I do want to thank you. If you're single and you're here, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, I, I know for myself, one, you know, obviously if you're married one day, it might be helpful. But then also, I know for myself in my marriage that some of the most helpful people to speak into our marriage and to actually give us encouragement and rebuke has come from a single person. Almost as this objective third party outside of it has really been able to speak into it. Uh, and so I hope, uh, among other things, that tonight's helpful as, as you help other married couples as well. So, well, uh, let, me, let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, I, I thank you for your kindness, God. Thank you for the, the gift of marriage. Thank you for the way that you've structured it in order to be a signpost to who you are. The fact that we get to enter into a relationship that is not just emotionally and mentally fulfilling, but is actually uh, existentially fulfilling, to know that our marriages exist for something more. Thank you for that gift, God. And, and I pray that tonight as we look at who Jesus is and how he is toward us, I, I pray that you would help us to feel a sense of, one, to, to be in awe of Jesus again, to really see him and how he moves toward us, who he is for us, and that in that our hearts would be moved to be toward one another and our marriages the same way that Jesus is toward us. And so, God, would you help us in that? Would you give us grace? God, would you unite your power with my weak words, and strengthen our marriages tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off by asking a question. How long did it take for you to realize that you were not the spouse that you thought you were going to be? How long did that take? Let me just tell you something. For me, not long at all. <laughs> like, like record time. If, if I hold the world record for anything, it's going to be for that. Realizing that I am not the spouse who I thought I was going to be. The amount of time between I do and oh no 
it was record time for me. Uh, I, could, I could look at our honeymoon. On the, the last day of our honeymoon, uh, we went on a little road trip through Arizona and Utah and ended up in St. George, Utah. I would never suggest going to St. George, Utah. It is so boring. But we, went, we had a fancy dinner at Red Lobster there, yeah, uh, which is what you do. Um, and, and during that dinner, I don't remember what happened or what happened that day, but we just got in a nasty fight, you know, just like, did, didn't finish our meal, didn't get to the cheesy biscuits, horrific, <laughs> tragedy. Um, it, was, it was a rough night, and I, and I remember uh, leaving Red Lobster and being like, okay, babe, listen, I, I just need some time to pray, um, and so I'm going to drop you off at the hotel, uh, and I'm just going to drive around St. George and just pray and search and think, and so that's what I did. I, I dropped her off to the hotel, and I drove around for about an hour through St. George, just like searching and thinking and praying, God, where do I need to repent? Um, and then I finish that, and I go to the hotel, I open the door, and there she is watching Harry Potter. <laughs> and I'm just like, did you even repent? You know, like, did you do any work? Because the movie, the movie was about an hour in, too, so I know <laughs> it's been going on this whole time, right? But the problem was my self-righteousness. I very quickly sensed, like, oh, do you, you don't really even care, do you? But I can even go sooner than that. Right after our wedding, I realized I was not the spouse that I thought I was going to be. So I got married when I was 22. Uh, and something to know about 22-year-old Joshua is that at that time, he was a server at Buffalo Wild Wings. Delicious, still. Uh, one of the few places I would still eat that I worked at. Um, <laughs> And as a server who, had, you know, before being married was single, I had this financial philosophy that was basically, as long as I have enough money to get what I need that day, I could be with zero dollars at the end of the night. Uh, it doesn't matter, because I know the next day as a server, I'm going to make cash in hand and I can just pay for whatever I want then. And so that's kind of how I lived my life, as long as I had gas in the tank and food and enough money to have fun. Even if I went to bed with zero dollars, it didn't matter. Well... <laughs> On our, on our wedding night, after the wedding, we stopped by Wendy's uh, through the drive-thru, because that's what you do. Um, got some nuggies, and, and, I, and I remember this distinct moment of handing that cashier $20 and getting back 7 and for some reason, not until then did it hit me, this is all the money that I'm bringing into our marriage. $7. $7 is, is what I brought in, which was really hard, because Courtney was a, a saver and had a lot of money, and so it was, it was really difficult. So just hours into being married, I quickly realized that I was already letting myself down and letting Courtney down. I, I thought that I would be better than what I actually was. And I say all that to get to this. We all have an idea of what marriage will be like and what we will be like in marriage, right? And we end up getting disappointed to some degree or another, usually to a greater degree. But I think the question that bothers me is this. These ideas about what marriage is, these ideas about who we're going to be in marriage, where are we getting those from? Like, have we, have we ever really sat down to think, where did I get the idea that I should be this type of husband or this type of spouse? Where did those ideas come from? Or, or asked, asked this way, how do you know whether your marriage is healthy? Asked another way, how do you really know that your marriage sucks? 
Like, what, what are you using to define that? I think there's a lot of different things that we use. Obviously, there, there is personal experience. There, there's ways in which we can pick up on whether our marriage is healthy or not based off of personal experience. But, but one thing I also know is that when marriage sometimes is at its best, it's the most miserable, right? And so personal experience is not a holistic enough lens for us to think through whether our marriages are healthy or not. Sometimes our marriages are trended toward health in the best way, even though it's miserable. And it's miserable because we're doing healthy things like confession and repentance and working through things. So personal experience is not good enough. There's got to be another standard. There's got to be something that we can look at and say, this is what it's supposed to be. This is what our marriage is for. And there's all kinds of standards that that were offered in the world. Some of us are are using what I'd call the the Disney narrative, right? The standard that tells us prince and princess live happily ever after, dancing and singing together. Some of us really have that standard for our marriages. Or some of us are using what I'd call the bachelor or the bachelorette narrative. If you're not a part of Icon, you don't know this. I love the bachelor and the bachelorette. (laughs) Love it. If there's one vapid thing about me, it's that. I love that show. I love the drama. But many of us are using that idea to judge our marriages. The idea that among all the choices, you better pick the right one. And if you got it wrong, then you've signed up for misery and then even possible divorce. Or even the one that, another one that I think is maybe most prevalent is the standard of, of Project Self. In this standard, marriage exists to complement and supplement your project of self-fulfillment and self-actualization. That's what marriage is for, (laughs) to serve ourselves. The very reason for marriage is so that your personal fulfillment is served. So as soon as marriage works against that personal fulfillment, which it often does, you distance yourself, right? Friends, our, our experience in marriage is directly tied to what we are using to judge our marriages. What are we using? Whatever we're pointing to when we say it should be like this, that's going to determine, going to determine whether the marriage is actually healthy or not. Which is why for us as Christians, when Paul in Ephesians 5 directed by the Holy Spirit, gives some insight on what marriage is actually for, it is such a relief. So if you know, in Ephesians 5, the the Apostle Paul lays out exactly what the standard is, exactly what marriage is for. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he tells us that marriage is meant to be a signpost to Jesus's relationship with his church. That's the standard. That's the standard we judge our marriages against and ask, is it like that? And that's really a relief to have, to not really have to figure out what marriage is, but to be told by God, here's what it is, to have an archetype to aspire to that we don't have to figure out. The conviction of the Christian scriptures is that marriage is not random. It does not exist only for one's relational, emotional, or even sexual fulfillment. It does not exist for the biological need to propagate the species. 
No, in the end, it exists to be a signpost to how Jesus feels and acts toward his church. That's the standard of marriage. And that's what I want to explore tonight. I want to analyze Christ's relationship to the church. Now, I know in all of this, there's all kinds of conversation around leading and things like that. Don't worry, I'm not going to get into that, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. Rather, what I want to explore is that what are the values we see in that relationship? What are the values that Jesus expresses toward his church? Because really, upon reflection, the whole Ephesians 5 passage is really hitting at that. His emphasis on how Jesus' relationship with his church directs the tone and environment of our marriages. So what I want to do tonight is simply remind you of some ways Jesus acts toward us and have that maybe inspire that, inspire that in us to be that toward one another. Nothing profound. Uh, I'm not, uh, I've been married nine years. I have some things to say, but more than anything, I just want to remind you, hey, this is who Jesus is toward you. You. And let that move you toward being that toward your spouse. So we're going to talk about three ways that Jesus approaches us, the way that he is toward us and how that might affect our marriages. So first, Jesus is truthful toward us. Jesus is truthful toward us. So, so Jesus saved me when I was 18, uh, just fresh out of high school and into college. And I had grown up in the church my whole life and had in many ways for my whole life pretended to know and love Jesus. But kindly, faithfully, God pushed me into a corner to no longer be able to live that life. At 18, I was confronted and in many ways outed as living a pretty sinister double life, and my whole life fell apart. And what I most remember from that time was having to face the facts that for over a decade I had pretended and I had played along, but now I didn't have that option. My sin was out there for everyone to see, and I had to admit exactly what was going on as I lived my life. I really, I really only had two options back then, choose to reject all of the painful truth that had just gotten outed and just go off to live this college life away from Jesus, or choose to accept that I had been lying about myself for years and then come to Jesus. Now, I'm a pastor, so you can probably guess I chose the latter, right? I came to Jesus. God pushed me into a corner, and, and I had to face the facts of what was going on if I was going to move forward with him. And the same is true for all of us. Friends, the very genesis of the Christian life starts off with truth-telling. In order to start a relationship with Jesus, we first have to confess our sin, right? Right? And what is that other than agreeing with God that he's telling the truth in his assessment of our sin? We agree to the truth. I am a sinner, and this is actually sin, and I actually need forgiveness. To even begin walking with Jesus, we have to tell the truth. Jesus is committed to telling the truth about us, and he's committed to us agreeing with that truth through confession, right? I mean, listen to how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John. He says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. This is the Apostle John. This is the message that I heard from Jesus and that I proclaim to you now. 
that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I mean, did you pick up on the dynamics of our relationship with God? That God has eternally lived in light, and in him there is no darkness, which means if we choose to walk in darkness through the lack of confession, then we lack the fellowship with God. We can't start a life with Jesus without first telling the truth. To be in fellowship with God doesn't require our moral perfection. John hits on that later, right? Our sin has been dealt with in Christ. That is not our personal moral perfection that's going to bring fellowship with God. But to have fellowship with God, there must be an honesty with God. Walking in the light will nourish that fellowship, while hiding in the darkness will negate it. Jesus is toward you a truth teller. He is unflinchingly committed to you telling the truth. And he'll tell the truth about you. <laughs> I mean, I think about the, the scene of Jesus having the conversation with the woman at the well. And Jesus talks about how, you know, I, I have living water that I can offer you. And the woman comes back and says, give me this living water so that I don't have to come out to this well anymore. So don't thirst anymore. And, and Jesus' immediate response right after that, without even talking to her desire, he says, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't, I don't have a husband. And how does Jesus respond? You're right. You, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've, you've had five and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. Does anybody else feel the awkwardness of that? That Jesus tells the truth. Jesus does not shy away from telling us the truth of any given situation, of who we are in any given situation. He's unflinchingly truthful toward us. He will not entertain fantasy, hypocrisy, or delusions which I think shows us something in our marriages. If all of this is supposed to point to Jesus, this shows us something. The, the obvious implication is truthfulness through confession with one another, right? Do our spouses know our sins and not just the ones that they can pick up on easily because it's done against them? But do our spouses really know what's going on? Do they know the interior life that they can't see? I hate using this phrase, but I'm going to use it. Does your true self show up within your marriage? Or, even years in, is it still just a version of you that is appeasable and easy to love? Does your spouse know the truth about you? Or even another implication of that is this. Are we together truthful about where we're at? As husband and wife. What I mean about, by that is that are we not just truthful toward one another about ourselves, but are we truthful with one another about the marriage? Are we facing the hard facts of where we're really at, about where we are struggling, where we are thriving, where we would want to be but are currently not? You see it so many times where one spouse is not truthful about where the marriage is really at. And so because of that, one of them wants to go to counseling, but the other doesn't, right? Right? 
One of them wants to work on it. The other just wants to live in fantasy. If we're going to have a healthy marriage, and healthy by the Christian definition, then friends, we're going to have to be willing to face the hard facts together. Can you do that in your marriage? Do you do that in your marriage? Do you, or, do you and your spouse come together and really analyze where things are at? Or are you, are you just kind of going about in life and shoving down what's really acting, what's really happening? Well, friends, as we follow Jesus, as Jesus is truthful toward us, we should be truthful with one another. No more acting like it's better than it actually is. No more pushing out of the mind the hard facts about the hard struggles. As Christians, that are husband and wife, we relate to one another in truth. Which if I can make a guess here, that's, that probably scares a number of you, right? <laughs> but thankfully, there's more to how Jesus relates to us that we can find in our marriages. While Jesus is committed to the truth in our relationship with him, he remains immovably gentle. Jesus tells the truth and never lets that devolve into such a harsh criticism that makes us want to move away from him. I mean, you think back to when I was 18 and I, and I had to face those hard facts of what my life was really like. If it was that hard, why'd I stay? Why did I keep going towards this Jesus if it was so hard to face the truth about my sin? Because this, though Jesus makes us face the hard facts, not once does he rub our face in them. Jesus will make us look at the truth, make us acknowledge it, but not once does he rub our faces in them. The gentleness of Jesus Back then, it was this irresistible magnet that latched my heart to him. Jesus is immovably gentle. I mean, we're reminded of this all throughout the Gospels, but for me, the most explicit is in Jesus' healing of the leper in Mark 1. In that, it says this, And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity... Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. I mean, did you pick up on the, the posture of Jesus in all of this? Jesus doesn't just deliver a miracle here, though he does, but actually moves toward the man in gentleness. I mean, understand what's going on here. This man is a leper, which means for years he has spent his time in isolation. No opportunity for community, living outside the city and devoid of the warmth of human touch. But he hears that Jesus is in town and at great risk to himself makes his way through the crowds. And finally, he sees Jesus and breaks down at his feet. Lord, if you are willing, if there's something in you that would move you to heal me, I know you can do it. And Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, I want to do that. Be healed. In gentleness, Jesus reaches out and touches him. This man who had lived in isolation for years, who had forgotten the warmth of human 
touch, Jesus in gentleness moves toward him. And we could go on and on. We could explore the restoration of Peter, where Jesus had all the opportunity to not be gentle, but restored Peter in a spirit of gentleness. Or Psalm 103.10, where we hear about God will not deal with us according to our sins. That God won't relate to us on the basis of our sins, but on the basis of his heart. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, or easily exacerbated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And having a Savior who's so gentle toward us, whose posture is open arms, I think my question is just, is that your posture toward your spouse? When you see the hard facts, what does then your spouse see? Inflamed eyes, <laughs> crossed arms, all an understandable initial reaction, but do those postures stay? Or asked another way, do we pounce on the failures of our spouse? And you know what I mean by pounce. Not just being angry about it, but actually beginning to use it. Anybody else done that? Am I the only sinner in this room who the, the failures of my spouse is an opportunity for me to get what, what I want? All of these, the opposite of gentleness. The opposite. Gentleness toward your spouse moves the arc of your relationship toward reconciliation. It invests in the person through grace and mercy rather than using the person's failures to get what we want. And out of all of these that I'm going through, and the one I'll get into after this, I'm convinced that there's no greater need than this one, gentleness toward one another in your marriage. And that's because gentleness aligns your marriage onto the standard of Christ in the church so uniquely. If our marriage is meant to be a signpost to Christ in the church, it might shine the brightest when gentleness is our reaction toward one another. The rest of the world can be truthful with one another. And even what I'm going to get into later, they can do that too. But be gentle toward one another. To see the hard facts of how your spouse has failed you and respond with gentleness. That uniquely points to Christ in the church. Listen to how the theologian and pastor John Webster says this. He says, gentleness is not indifference to sin. It's not mere softness, pretending that sin isn't sin, because that's not a way of dealing with failure, but a way of avoidance. Gentleness is truthful, realistic, looks failure in the eyes and sees, sees it for what it is. But it doesn't then fall into the hostility that so often threatens to engulf us when we try to deal with the sins of others. Gentleness is the opposite of the fierce, bitter, accusatory attitude that very quickly mars the way in which we handle failure. It deals gently with failure, 
Not because it underestimates or minimizes the seriousness of sin, but because gentleness is in accordance with the deep truth of the gospel. If your marriage is meant to be a signpost to Jesus and his church, the most important way for you to invest in that tonight is to watch how you speak to one another. To watch how you react. To pick up on your body language. When your spouse says that thing, does that thing, again. You want to reflect Christ in the church? Be gentle with one another. And so we face the hard facts, but never rub each other's faces in them. And finally, Jesus is eternally faithful. There are seven wonders in the world, right? I want to pause it an eighth. The fact that Jesus is still with me. The fact that Jesus has not given up on me yet is a wonder. Am I, am I the only one who's astounded at the long-suffering of Jesus? Am I the only one? I want you to talk back too, just like Alex. At Icon, we want you to talk back. Am I the only one astounded by the long-suffering nature of Jesus? That for me, 13 years now, I've been hobbling along this discipleship path with some interludes and some rest stops in between, and Jesus is still right here. Not even ahead of me, dragging me along, but right here with me. He has remained faithful. He is with me, and he is with you. He is always with us. I mean, to think that Jesus has seen with divine clarity every moment that you've abandoned him. With divine clarity every moment that you've failed him. Even the ones where you did it on purpose. Even the ones where you did it almost as a spite toward grace. And he's still here. He's not moved. I'm reminded of how John's simple sentence in John 13, 1, it says that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' commitment toward us is not a flash in the pan. It's not occasional. It's not situational. His faithfulness is eternal. Jesus' commitment to you has never moved an inch. The force of all of your sins multiplied over the years that you followed him has not moved a hair out of place in his commitment towards you. He is faithful. And all of this done willingly in him. Jesus isn't faithful toward us just because he has to be. Jesus doesn't remain committed to us out of a begrudging task. Well, I died for them, so I guess I got to keep them around. No, Jesus is happily committed to you tonight. Since you've become his, there's never been a day where he gave himself to dreaming of life without you. What? Again, am I the only one who's astounded? There's never been a day, a moment, where Jesus has thought, man, this whole thing would be a lot easier if I just would have never saved the fool. <laughs> This, this whole kingdom of God might work out better if Josh was never in it. 
It would be a whole lot easier if I never saved Alex. That's never come into Jesus' mind. Jesus is faithful. Now, the obvious implication for us is, is obvious. Fidelity, right? As those who exist boundaried by the faithfulness of God, we remain faithful to one another in our marriages because that tells the truth of how Jesus is toward us. But not just in the obvious way. Faithfulness toward one another in a Christian marriage is not just refusing to sleep with someone else. It's not just refusing to, not look, at, to, refusing to look at pornography. No, there's a deeper sense of faithfulness. It's the type of faithfulness that fights against those thoughts of what life would be like without your spouse. It means that you don't give yourself to dreaming about what life would have been like if things would have panned out with your ex. Is that too on the nose? (laughs) It means not dreaming, not considering what life would have been like with that other person. Instead, we remain faithful. It means we actively put down the rose-colored glasses of life without your spouse. (laughs) We're not just physically faithful, but emotionally faithful. Faithful in our ambitions of the life we want to create. Remember, Jesus and his faithfulness doesn't just mean that he stayed. It doesn't just mean that he's never cast us off. It means that he has never thought, he's never had a second thought about you. And I know that's impossible for you. I know you can't not have a second thought about your marriage, right? But do you entertain that? Do you let that go down the right go down the road? Because Jesus is faithful to us, we remain faithful, not just with our bodies, but even with our imaginations. Friends, this is what you want in the end. <laughs> I mean, a relationship of vulnerability that tells the truth of the situation without ever devolving into harsh criticism, all under the safety of lifelong commitment, that's what we all want. And that's what, as Christians, we've been invited into. But if I had to guess, in closing, I think there's a number of reactions that are probably going on in the room. Some of you are saying, oh yeah, that's right. Yes, faithfulness, gentleness, truthfulness. Yes, and to you I would say, go get them. Keep going. Keep investing in the truth and gentleness and fidelity of your marriage. But if I had to imagine it, there are some other reactions here as well. Some of you may feel disillusioned and numb to everything that I've said. That there's a barrier that's keeping you from moving all of this from theory into reality, that you acknowledge it's a beautiful recipe on paper, but never could I turn that over into a beautiful meal for my marriage. And that's because you're living in disillusionment in your marriage. That years of pain, hurt, dysfunction or disconnection has calloused that old ambition for something more. You don't want to desire this for your marriage because when the hope of something beautiful is allowed in your heart but never materialized, well, that makes the heart grow sick, doesn't it? 
And some of you have been let down in your marriage so often for so long. The very idea of wanting more feels too painful because you're just going to get let, let down again. But against all of that past evidence, I just want you to know tonight that it is right for you to want this beauty in your marriage. It's a right thing. I mean, one of the reasons it's good news that our marriages are meant to point to Jesus is that it means that our very desire for something beautiful in our marriages matches God's. If your marriage is meant to be a signpost to Christ in the church, don't you think God wants something beautiful there? Don't you think his desire even outmatches yours? That because, of our, because our marriages are signposts to Jesus, the very desire for something more is sanctioned by God. Would you receive the relief of that tonight? That you're not the only one who wants more for your marriage. God does too. And if you will receive that relief, you'll feel the freedom to dream beyond your disillusionment the dream of what could actually be. What I'm trying to say is this, don't let past dysfunction negate the potential for future beauty. It's good that you want more. It's good that you want more. I mean, your marriage is ongoing, right? It's still going, which means the final product is not yet determined. <laughs> there's time for change, there's possibility for more. Don't settle into disillusionment and numb your desire for more. Let that desire stay and let it be called good. <laughs> I'm reminded of, of John O'Donohue and his poem for longing. He says, blessed be the longing that brought you here and quickens your soul with wonder. May you come to accept your longing as divine urgency. Some of you could make real change in your marriage if you stop suppressing the desire for more, if you let yourself feel that desire, if you blessed that longing for more in your heart and received it as divine urgency leading you toward what God himself wants, it's good that you want more. But then at, in closing, I, I think there's another barrier. Some of you aren't disillusioned with your marriage per se, but more, disillusioned with yourself. You're not disillusioned with your spouse, but back to how I opened it up, you're worse than you thought you would be. You're disillusioned with who you are as husband or as wife. In other words, you are ashamed. You feel shame. To you, Stuck in shame, I want to remind you of something. Getting better as a spouse isn't going to fix your shame. <laughs> because shame is actually more about who you are or what you are. It's what it does. Shame uses what you've done in order to try to weave a narrative around who you are. Which means getting better isn't necessarily going to fix it. <laughs> the shame that you feel in your marriage isn't going to be fixed by you just being better. No, what you need is a better story, a better identity. What you need in all of this as you feel ashamed in your marriage in order to move past that 
Again, it's simple, but you need to hear the gospel truth of who or what you are. That you are not defined by how how terrible of a husband you are. You are not defined by how terrible of a wife you are. Rather, you are defined by who God says you are. That you are loved. I know that's the gospel truth at its most basic, but the fact that you are loved, if you receive that, if you let that be the true story of what you tell yourself and receive from God, it will change everything about how you relate to your spouse. It'll break free some of that shame that you were loved. And friends, when I say that you were loved by God, I don't mean that you were loved as a future version of you. (laughs) Friends, God is not waiting for a future version of you that he can love a little bit more. Even in your marriage. I know you are. I know you're waiting for that, (laughs) right? I know you're waiting for that better version of you, and so is your spouse. God's not waiting on that. God has decided to love you already. He's not waiting on a future version of you that he can love more. But he's ready to love you as is. God has decided to love you at your worst. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, God loved us at our worst. God didn't add up all of your good days and all of your bad days, all of your, all of your virtues and all of your vices, and think, you know what? In the end, This might be worth it. (laughs) This might be worth it to die for this person. This might be worth it to love this person. That's not what happened. Jesus didn't die for a future version of you. He died for the worst version of you, which means he loves you at your worst version. Listen, if God doesn't love you at your worst, he's never loved you at all. But he does love you at your worst. Because he died for you at your worst. And friends, if you would receive that truth in your marriage and let that speak to your shame, you'd have a whole lot more energy to actually begin investing in this thing again. To actually have some movement in your marriage happen. Friend, would you, would you receive who you are in Christ? Not just look to Jesus as, a, as the typeset for your marriage, But look to Jesus for how he is toward you personally and who he's made you to be. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that, again, this is not, that though the relationship of marriage is complex, the intent of it is not. You've you've shown us what the intent is to point to Jesus. And Father, I, I pray that even in just some of the few things that we talked about tonight with truthfulness and gentleness and faithfulness, I do pray that those would move into our marriages, that those would increase in our marriages, But more than anything, I just pray that you would help us to see that that's who you are toward us. And that changes everything, or at least it can. So, Father, would you give us grace? 
Would you be our helper? Would you help us to see Jesus and his beauty and how he moves toward us? And from there, give us the grace to, to move toward one another as husband and wife. Lord, we love you. We're grateful that you told us the truth. We're grateful that you are immovably gentle and that you remain faithful. God, make our marriages more into that. In Jesus' name.